0: And Lord, we do consecrate our lives to You. We pray that we would not just set aside this moment to worship You, to study Your Word, to fellowship with one another, but Lord, may our whole lives be dedicated to You, to following Your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be a walking testimony of those who are dedicated to Jesus because of what He has accomplished for us. Lord, we thank You for sending Him to this world, this dark world with many pains and tribulations. We thank you for sending him here to reverse the curse and bring about a blessing upon humanity. And Lord, we are so privileged that we can be a part of that blessing. We pray, Lord, that we would not squander that. We would worship you with all that we are. Even in these next few moments as we study your word, give us the grace to listen and follow your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's our joy and privilege to be together today and to sing and study the Word of God. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Here we are studying the Olivet Discourse. It was a sermon, or you could say an encouraging talk perhaps, that Jesus gave to his 12 disciples on the Mount of Olives the day before his arrest. The Olivet Discourse talks about the immediate future for the disciples, for the temple, for Jerusalem, all of Israel's and Israel and the Christians there in that first century. But if we, as we have seen, what would happen to them is emblematic for the church age. And so referenced here in this discussion is also the second coming of Christ, Jesus' return to the earth, and the encouragement is applicable to all of us until He does indeed return. Now remember those principles from the start. Be content with some ignorance. There are some things we cannot know. We will not know until, in terms of specificity, until Jesus comes back. Another point we made early on was to maintain our focus on the main point and to remember these things as we look ahead and look for application for transformation. That was a third idea. I think if we remember these things all throughout, we'll greatly benefit from Jesus' words even when they are about the immediate future of the disciples and Israel. All right, let me read to you the first 28 verses. should be somewhat familiar to you by now. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 28. Follow along as I read aloud. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, "'You see all these, do you not?' Truly I say to you, there will not be left left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." See, I've told you beforehand. So say to you, so if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he's in inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. The first one died in 44 A.D. We're told that Herod killed him with a sword, most likely meaning he was either beheaded or impaled on a sword. Happened there in the first ten years or so of the church. Who is this? The first what? Well, this is the first apostle. This is the first apostle to be martyred. It was James, brother of John. James actually, we are told, shared the gospel so relentlessly with the person who accused him and escorted him to the authorities that eventually that person received Christ and was beheaded with James, was martyred alongside James who had led him to the Lord. Andrew was martyred by crucifixion on an X-shaped cross. It was in the south of Greece. He hung there for two full days. And we are told that when he could, he would preach the gospel to all the people who were watching him die. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, is probably one of the most active missionaries outside of the Apostle Paul. He traveled to Mesopotamia, to Persia, to Ethiopia, to Arabia, possibly all the way to the outskirts of India. And when he was in the region of Armenia, which is western Turkey, he was captured skinned alive, and then crucified. The other James, sometimes known as James the Lesser, was thrown from a high part of the temple, the crowd surrounding him, and crushed his head with large stones. Thaddeus, or Jude, was beaten with a club and also crucified. Matthew, who is the author of the gospel we're studying, went to Ethiopia to preach... And while he was there, he did just like Jesus and John the Baptist. He called out the local leaders for their immorality. For doing that, he was pinned to the ground and killed with stakes. The Apostle Peter, some of you know this, like Paul would later, he appealed to Rome. He was exiled there. He was tried and then crucified. Of course, Peter did not want to be crucified like his Savior, so he insisted on being crucified upside down. The Apostle Philip preached first in Asia but ended up moving down toward North Africa in Egypt where he preached the gospel. There he was captured. He was hung from his ankles and tortured with brass hooks until he died. Simon the Canaanite, sometimes called Simon the Zealot, he ended up traveling all the way to what we consider Britain. The Celts and the Druids and the Romans who were there rejected him completely. They crucified him as well and then sought his body in two. Thomas, who, was probably, who probably preached the gospel the furthest away from Israel, went all the way to India, where he was killed with a sword. Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas, he was stoned and beheaded there in Jerusalem. And finally, the apostle late in time Paul, some of you know, was beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero. The apostle John... It is said that he was the only one who was not martyred, but he died on a prison island. So I'm sure it wasn't an enjoyable death. I'm telling you all this not to gross you out or give you bad dreams later on. I want you to see that what Jesus said came true. What Jesus said would happen actually happened. In fact, if you combine what Jesus said here and The truths that I just told you about what happened to the apostles here with what we learned about what happened in Jerusalem, everything that Jesus said in these early verses of chapter 24 came true. All the people fleeing and running away, going to Masada, Jerusalem being destroyed, the temple being destroyed and flattened, all of these things came true. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Think about how many different nationalities were involved in killing these apostles. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations and the end will come. Verse 21, then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world till now, no and never will be. All of these things came true. I was talking with One of you, last week, we discussed the fact that prophecies of Jesus are not mere predictions, they are promises. Throughout these first 28 verses, Jesus gives them instruction, even commands them how they are to live and endure and suffer these terrifying times. He told them in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. What's that mean? How are they going to find endurance? Well, Jesus gives them instruction all throughout these first verses in the Olivet Discourse. And we began to note last week, we began to note these pieces of instruction, these imperatives. What do we write down? Number one, we wrote down, do not be naive. Do not be naive. What was Jesus' first concern? He talks about all these terrible things that are coming. What was His first concern? His first concern was their theology. All these terrible realities coming to His men, coming to Jerusalem, the martyrdom, the death, the destruction, all of that in jesus mind he knew what was coming to them and the first thing that he mentions verse 4 see that no one leads you astray and a lesson three times throughout this discourse he mentioned over and over there will be deceivers there'll be false teaching deception many who claim to be christ claiming that they're with christ or come from christ or appointed by christ speaking for christ a prophet a teacher that might even work some sort of sign or wonder that is given to trick people, perhaps even trick the elect of God. And we learn the biggest threat to a Christian is not poverty or sickness or persecution or even death. The biggest threat to us is false teaching. And so Jesus told his men, be on guard against false teaching. Be on guard. Don't be naive. There's all kinds of things that will come in the name of Christ that will be called Christian The place where you need to have the most discernment is not out in the world. It is in the Christian bookstore. The place where you need to discern the most is not between things that are blatantly wrong and obviously wrong, but things that are just partly right. Things that have some falseness to it because that is the way that Satan deceives us. He gives us partial truth to suck us in. Without discernments, we would... Also be deceived. So we need to take heed lest we fall, doctrinally speaking. Don't be naive. Number two, don't be anxious. Verse 6, the next command that Jesus gave His men halfway through verse 6, see that you are not alarmed. Don't become overwhelmed with the circumstances and the troubles of your life, though they be many, though it take you all the way to torture and to death. Don't be overwhelmed by your circumstances. Rather, you should be overwhelmed by the surpassing peace of God. They were to do that. We are to do that as well. How were they supposed to do it? How are we supposed to do that? We go to God for strength, we go to God for encouragement, we go to His Word for truth, we thank Him, we praise Him in all circumstances of life, and that is where we find the peace that passes all understanding. Now, we have these two negative instructions, don't be naive. And don't be anxious. My next two points I make from the positive side. Number three, be prepared. Now let's just read this again. I think we'll see this as we move forward. Verse 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that none of you are alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains why is jesus saying all this so that they'll know they'll be prepared they'll be ready this is going to happen this hardship these things are happening wars rumors of wars earthquakes tribulation torture death all these things are coming to you so be ready be prepared show perseverance through these things verse 9 they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray because of lawlessness will, because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will go cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you these things so that you would endure. I'm telling you these things giving you a broad picture. He didn't give them specifics, you'll notice. He didn't say, by the way, Peter, uh, cross is coming for you. Uh, James, they're going to eventually cut you in half. Just pray that you'll be dead when that happens. He didn't give them specifics, but he did say they're going to be tortured, they're going to face death, they're going to face all kinds of tribulation in that world. He's preparing their hearts. He's wanting them to be prepared for the hardship that is coming. The mark of true salvation would be then their endurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The end there, that means the end of each phase of persecution or perhaps even the end of their lives. The one who endures all the way to the end will be saved. Now, Jesus is not suddenly changing salvation, how a person is saved. Salvation is no longer by grace through faith. No, now it's just your own personal accomplishment enduring to the end. No he's saying that the marker of a true believer is that they endure. They persevere. And even if they stumble and fall, they get back up and continue to pursue Christ likeness. They continue to pursue holiness. They continue to love me. Even if they fail, they endure to the end. I said this to you before. Your assurance is your endurance and your endurance is your assurance. You want assurance? The Bible doesn't tell you. Well, go back to a moment where you're real emotional. Did you make a decision for Jesus? No. Our assurance, we find our assurance by being someone who endures. Look at your endurance. You want assurance, you endure. Look at your life. Are you repentant? Are you broken? Not so much that you not sin. Not, do you not have hardship? And that's what the prosperity gospel would teach, is that you don't have faith because you're, enduring, you're having hardship in your life. You must not have enough faith. That's not what Jesus says. The sign of salvation is that you endure. Is there a constant reliance on the Holy Spirit? Is there a drive to be holy and follow Jesus? Is there perpetual repentance? This is your assurance. When you're hated for His name's sake, do you persevere? When others fall away around you for false gods, do you persevere? False teachers arise, and you discern and reject them and continue. This is your sign of assurance. This is your assuring sign of salvation. When your love actually grows cold, but you bounce back and you return to your Lord, to your first love, the one who endures to the end will be saved. No, Jesus didn't say the one who reaches perfection will be saved. The one who obeys me with total perfection... Is the one who is saved? who one who is completely consistent will be saved? No, he knows all of us, our bodies have not yet been redeemed. That's impossible in this life, but we endure. Why do we, why do we endure? How can we endure? We prepare our mind and our hearts for trouble, for hardship. You arm yourself with the disciplines and the practices of a follower of Jesus Christ. You prepare your heart. You Prepare your spiritual muscles, so to speak, to endure hardship. You work into your life those disciplines of personal Bible study and prayer and corporate worship and connectedness with other believers, accountability and friendships. All these things take effort. All of these things are exercising your spiritual muscles. It's not easy to do these things, but you do it so that you can endure to get up early to insist on going to family group after a long day of work it's all what it means to be prepared jesus wanted his men to be prepared we should be prepared as well we had a young family in our church a few years ago some of you as i tell this story you'll know exactly who i'm talking about the young man well you could use the word specimen he was a specimen he lived down on eva beach and he was the kind of guy that could run around with a shirt off and not be embarrassed He was a specimen. He was in shape. He did a lot of weightlifting, but he also ran, I think, six miles three times a week in sub-seven-minute pace. He was cruising. He was in such great shape. Well, his wife decided that she wanted to run in the Honolulu Marathon, and she began to train for this. And as she got closer and closer the day of the marathon, she convinced her specimen husband to join her and run in the marathon. He thought to himself well how hard could this be I run six miles every other day I'm running sub -sub seven minute mile I'm in great shape six percent body fat I'll get out there and I'll just cruise this will be easy he did no preparation whatsoever other than what he was already doing he signed up he assumed everything would be fine the gun went off he scampered off like a stabbed rat sub seven minute mile pace mile six he was feeling great mile seven Little off mile eight, his calf seized up, and all he could do was hobble for the next 18 and a half miles. At some point, his wife breezed past him, he didn't even see her. She breezed past him, took him over five and a half hours to reach the finish line. Needless to say, he was not prepared to endure are you prepared to endure I gave you a little snippet last week my little prophecy prediction of your life you're gonna face hardship most of you are gonna face death if not all of you are you prepared are you working towards those hardships are you able to face hardship and my job as a pastor in part is to prepare you for these things is to build in your heart spiritual resiliency, to arm you, to coach you, and give you spiritual conditioning, to encourage you to those things that will will exercise those spiritual muscles and ready you for when cancer comes or when your wife leaves you or when you die. My job is to help you be spiritually prepared. Well, this is what Jesus was doing to His disciples. They were getting ready to face great hardship Back up in verse 9, you will be ha- hated. They will deliver you and put you to death. Now, again, just thinking in context, putting your feet in the sandals of the disciples, I don't think the disciples were saying, well, this is about the church in general, the church age. I think they were thinking about themselves. This is, he's talking to us. He's saying, we're going to face this. And they were supposed to endure to the end, the end of their lives, the end of each perpetual persecution, which they did. So they were thinking about what was coming in their lives, what things they would face, and then we showed historically and this morning and last week that they did face those exact things. Now, keeping this in mind, look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. This is one of those verses so often ripped out of its context. I think we sort of lose the meaning here and what was happening, as though nothing was written before or after it. Jesus is not saying that before He returns, every single person will hear the gospel, or He's not even saying that the trigger for His return is the gospel going to every single people group or every single nation. Some people have said this, if you want Jesus to come back, get the gospel to every nation. Now, that's a great objective. We want the gospel to go to every nation. In fact, we support Wycliffe Ministries through Chuck and Andrea Lynn. We support this, and this, the idea is to get the gospel, get the word of God to every nation, every people group. That's a great objective, but not because this verse tells us that Jesus is saying, well, you do your job in getting the gospel out, and then once you do that, then I'll respond by coming back. Now, in context, what is this verse saying? It's talking about the apostles and their age and what they're going to do until the end of their lives, and that is to get the gospel out. And it's very similar to what Paul says in uh, the first or a couple verses in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. The word of truth, the gospel, has come to you, indeed, the whole world. Now, Paul did not mean every single last people group had the gospel. He's saying this age is the age of the initial missionary movement to the world. And that's what happened when when, when Jesus, uh, before He sent it to heaven, He told them to go to the world. In the book of Acts, we see the gospel going to all the world. I read to you the, the testimonies of the deaths of all the apostles. Where were they? They were all over the world. Spreading the gospel truth. Jesus is saying to His disciples, listen, before you die, before your age ends, the gospel is going to go all over the world. Again, you think about the deaths of these apostles. They are persecuted, they are martyred. And you think about all the different nations of people, different people groups and languages involved in killing just the, the twelve there. As they carried out the Great Commission, the gospel was spreading like wildfire to the whole world. Now again, this is not to say this is not this idea is not somehow connected or emblematic of our own area era, as the gospel is spread further and further and further to all the uttermost parts of the world. even our own day includes persecution. God's kingdom is growing and spreading, like that tiny mustard seed Jesus talked about in Matthew 13 in that parable going down into the earth and then coming up as a tree and all the different nations coming and finding their nest in it. I'm not saying there's nothing applicable here or nothing similar here, but it's pretty clear in context Jesus is talking about the disciples about their day. These first 28 verses are fundamentally, and we should read them as fundamentally about something that would happen in their day. Again, that's not to say it's not emblematic or can't be applied in some ways to our day, but fundamentally, as we read this, it is about their day. He goes on, verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation, again, just think like the disciples, put yourself on their sandals. When Jesus said, when you see, they didn't think, well, he's not talking about us. He's talking about somebody else. Now, when you see it, again, there may be some similar themes, some similar events that Jesus is talking about, what they or many of them would be around to see or at least see in terms of history. When you see the abomination of desolations, again, if you look what happened in that first century, it happened exactly as Jesus said. What is this, the abomination of desolations? of desolation that's one of those uh, apocalyptic phrases you hear you don't really know what it is it sounds terrible it sounds abominable in fact and you wonder what is this and and you hear people pontificate on exactly what it means what it means for us today and what's the future and all these things And they have all these ideas all we can really go off is, uh, is what we see in the bible it's only mentioned a few times in the bible right here in the Olivet Discourse, and three times in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, and Daniel chapter 12. You may be surprised to know it's not mentioned in the book of Revelation, though there are many people who have decided this is where it belongs in the end of time. Again, that's not to say that something similar won't happen at the end of time, but interesting, when... They point out the verses in Revelation that they believe are about the abomination of desolations. It does not even reference what Jesus says or even reference what Daniel said, just as Jesus did here. The abomination of desolations just mentioned here and then three times in Daniel. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, in a broad sense, it's the desecration and destruction of the temple. It's bringing into the temple, all three verses in Daniel talk about this, bringing into the temple the worship of false or pagan gods, desecrating the temple. And usually this desecration is coinciding with destruction. So, abomination, that's the desecrating part. Desolation, that's the destruction part. It is taking what was built as an act of worship and as a place of worship of only God and violating it and destroying it. Again, you may find some similar ideas in Revelation 13, but I don't think Jesus is referring to that future event. I think he's talking about, one, what happened right after Daniel with Antiochus Epiphanes. And just as Jesus said, when the Romans took control of Israel, it happened right there, in their day. They took out the holy devices of the temple, they scattered them among the people, they desecrated those holy artifacts, taking them out of the temple, and they brought in Roman images of false gods and paraded them up there on the temple mount. And of course, at the same time they did that, they absolutely destroyed, as we talked about last week, they destroyed the temple. So in context, in their context, as the disciples heard what Jesus said about the abomination of desolations, they'd heard about it in Daniel, and it took place, and now they're hearing about it again, and it took place right in their generation. Within about 30 or 40 years. Again, that's not to say that that experience is not emblematic, something similar won't happen in the future, but then and there, as they listened, they took that to mean what they're going to see. They will see it they will see the abomination of desolations. Jesus is talking to them about their day, about their tribulation, about their struggle, about the death and carnage and destruction and martyrdom that they would face and how they should face it. Jesus goes on and says, Let those who are in Judea flee. Again, their day, their place even references the people all practicing Sabbath. That would happen in Israel. and They're all practicing as the, the Roman army comes marching in. He says, flee, run. Pray that it's not cold. Pray that you're not pregnant. How terrible would this be if this all happened? And they fled out into the wilderness. They went to Masada, as I described last week. So if you just listen to this as, you've, as if you were an apostle, it all sorts to... It sort of makes sense. Again, that's not to say there's some sort of symbol or, or mechanism that's connecting us to the end of days, but it definitely is something that took place right there in their days, the next few decades. Desecration of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, desecration and abomination of desolations right there, Israelites fleeing to the wilderness, great persecution of Christians. What is Jesus' description of the horrifying era? Verse 17, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. In other words, just run. Just run. The Roman military is coming. Just run. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants in those days, pray your flight not might be in winter or the Sabbath, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. Let me just say this. Don't let that verse change your healthy interpretation of this. First, Jesus spoke, a, spoke in terms of hyperbole. There is a sense, though, that this was true. In terms of Israel, the destruction that Israel faced, the nation of Israel, the, the country right there, the place, that was the last major destruction. Now, we know during World War II, more Jews were killed. But in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem, that was the worst that ever was. Jesus' words are true. What they faced in those days, and I described it last week to you, fulfilled perfectly what Jesus, did, Jesus said. Verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In other words, God still had some saving to do. God was not going to let evil win. He had people he wanted to save. If anyone says to you, again, addressing the disciples, I don't think they would have thought... Well, this is not us. I think they would have known that this to be them. Look, there's the, here's the Christ. There he is. Do not believe it. False Christ, false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I have told you beforehand. If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there, there the vultures will gather. He's preparing his men. He's saying, there's going to be rumors that I've returned and you've missed it. I'm just preparing you. Be prepared for this. Again, even if this was fulfilled in that first century, it doesn't mean similar things happen today and will happen until Jesus returns again. Jesus will address that return. He even takes us all the way up to that at the very end of this verse, and then he'll start talking about it as we move forward. Primarily, Jesus was making His men spiritually ready. He was preparing them to endure hardship. Be prepared. Be prepared, He's saying to His men. This is going to happen to you. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be horrible. You're going to face some terrible things. Prepare your hearts. So The application is obvious that we ought to be prepared as well. Have you been exercising those spiritual muscles? Have you looked at your own heart? Are you prepared? Your hardship may not be fleeing to the wilderness of Judea. Your tribulation might come in different ways, but you need to be prepared. How can you make yourself prepared? Well, first of all, I would say settle your salvation. Any given Sunday, there's a number of you that sit in this room, and you are not a true Christian. Probably, as I said that, you're trying to convince yourself, yes, I am, but you know down deep inside, and God knows you're not. Maybe you're not a Christian because you haven't fully understood the gospel or believed the gospel, that Christ produced the righteousness that is the only allowable righteousness, the only righteousness that can get anyone to heaven. He produced that righteousness in His life here on this earth. And then He went on to provide for you a payment for sin. And then He rose from the dead, was ascended to the Father, proving His victory over death and sin. And if you believe this, if you believe these truths, God will apply that righteousness to you, God will apply that that, uh, victory over sin to you, and God will give you eternal life. Maybe that's just not something that's been clear in your heart. Maybe you've wondered about works and wondered about this ritual or that ritual, or you look back and someone baptized you or you got emotional and you can't really figure out what salvation really is. Well, I just gave it to you. Those basic ideas of who you—if you believe in Christ in that way, you will be saved. Others of you, maybe you are like I was for many years growing up in church. Those are truths that I believed from infancy pretty much. As soon as my mind could understand those things, I, I believed them. I didn't have a reason not to. My parents taught them to me. There are quite literally millions of people, though, that understand that gospel and are not true Christians. James said even demons believe in these things simply because they're historically true, but they're not saved. Why? Because that kind of belief, just intellectual belief, is not enough. It's not just about intellectually assenting. It is a belief that leads to repentance. It's not just belief in facts. It is faith. It is a changed life that says, I'm going to build my life off of the truth of Christ, Him crucified, resurrected. He's changed everything for you. So that's one way you can be ready. The other way you can be ready is to be ready as though God has given you great stewardship of all the things that He's done for you. Be prepared by living in the love and continuing to exert that faith, continuing to to live repentant, Think of the spiritual disciplines, consistent repentance and Bible reading and consistent prayer and corporate worship and being connected to other believers. This is all part. These are things that aren't, don't come easily for some of us. You pick which on that list, which is hard for you. Some of you, some of those things are easy. Others of you, other things are easy. All of us are struggle with these things. You prepare your heart by pursuing these things, working these things. Finally, a way we can be prepared is by consistently having an eternal perspective. Reality is not ultimately what happens in your 60 to 80-year lifespan. Reality is eternity, this should change the way you walk, talk, spend your money, spend your time. All your focus remains on that eternal reality. That's not to say you don't have a grip on this life, but... You do everything with that overarching understanding of eternity. Well, this brings me to the fourth and final point of this message, and it's just hinted at in these verses 1 to 28, but it leads us to what Jesus is going to say in the next session. So far we've said don't be naive, don't be anxious, be prepared. And number four, be hopeful. Like I said, this is really part of being prepared. It's an eternal perspective, a a hope for Christ, a hope for His return, a belief that God has absolute sovereign control over every last detail of this world, every situation over history, including leading up to even the end of days. This should plant a hope and a trust deep within your heart. It should lead us to trust and patience and calmness. As you might imagine, as Jesus said these things to His disciples, there are a number of thoughts that may have come into their mind. A couple of scary thoughts. One might be something like this. Is Jesus really going to return in the right time? Or is God really in control of this? Or is this somehow... Is man's free will locked into this? How is history going to unfold? Is it all under God's control? Or is this something that's just sort of this interplay between God and Satan and man and all these different wills happening? The short answer, of course, is that God is in absolute control. The second scary thought might have been something like this. If deception is going on regarding Jesus and false prophets... How will I be able to know that Jesus returned? Am I going to miss it? Is it? One, is it a scary thought? Is it going to happen in God's timing? Is God really in control? And the second thought, if Jesus comes back, will I miss it? It'll be so chaotic. It sounds terrible. It sounds so turbulent the rest of our lives. It, could Jesus return and we miss it? Well, Jesus is going to explain this further, and we'll get, this in, get into this next time more. There are a couple of things that he notes here. First of all, God has this massive plan that we perfectly carried out. Look up there in verse 8 again. These are but the beginning of birth pains. In other words, Jesus told the disciples, your trials have a place in God's massive plan. God has this plan and your trials and your tribulation, what you're facing, by the way, is at the beginning of God's plan for the end. This is the beginning of it. There are many trials and history that will follow, but it's all according to God's perfect plan. Christians sometimes try to get God off the hook when bad things happen, when the sorrows of the world come to us. They say something like this, well, God doesn't want this for you, so maybe you ought to just claim victory and overcome these things. Interesting, Jesus didn't say anything about that. By the way, gentlemen, if you just claim victory, you won't be martyred. No, the death, the tribulation, the hardship is all part of his plan. Christians try to get God off the hook. Your life is to be full of victory, spiritual victory, physical victory, not hardship. So avoid persecution, avoid hardship, avoid all these things as best you can. No, Jesus never gave such instruction. God's sovereign even over hardship, God is sovereign. Over persecution and death, God is sovereign over the torture and martyrdom of many of the faithful, even the torture and death of his own son. Instead of trying to get God off the hook, Jesus said, God is sovereign over this whole thing. This is all part of God's plan. You can maintain hope, gentlemen, because God is in control of this. This is all part of his plan. This is the beginning of the birth pains. Son of man is going to come back, but this is the beginning of the end. It's all part of God's plan. Wars, famines, earthquakes, tribulation, persecution, hate, betrayal, false prophets, lawlessness, denial, all of that, Jesus says, is a part of God's plan. He may not author it directly. Satan has the dubious desire and duty of carrying out evil, but God purposes that evil. And much to the frustration of Satan, God uses Satan's own devices to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. So trust him. Find hope in the midst of destruction and death and hardship. Don't try to get Him off the hook. Believe that He's using even your hardship for His glory in your life. The second hopeful thing Jesus mentioned here is a certainty that we will have about His return. That's what verses 27 and 28 are all about. Verse 27 For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it's unmistakable. You're not going to miss it. It's going to be obvious to all. There will be no doubt. You know what lightning is. Maybe in us in Hawaii, we don't really know what lightning is, but ask a mainlander. Storm moves across the sky. Moves from one direction, you can look off the top of a mountain, you can see the storm coming, lightning, rain, it's coming, it's certain, it's going to happen, it's getting closer and closer, it's going to happen. There's no doubt, there's no question of whether or not it's coming to you, it's heading to you. It's not confusing, it's not obtuse, it's certain, it's clear. In the same way Jesus returned, it'll be clear, it'll be obvious, you won't miss it. It's not going to be something we're all going to be scratching our head did he come back you're not going to walk out of your house one day and there's going to be people missing oh did i miss it now you you will miss the gathering of the elect if you're not a believer but if you're a believer if you're one a disciple of christ just like these apostles were you don't have to worry about anything it will be certain it'll be true it will happen and you won't be missed you'll be a part of it hope in that verse 28 wherever the corpse is there the vultures were gathered kind of a morbid example but it's the same idea you're concerned about the signs of jesus return they are unmistakable just like when you see vultures circling in the air and you know there's some poor dead animal over there there is no doubt there will be signs there will be evidence and you'll know christ is coming back you won't walk out of the house one day and have missed christ if you're a follower you will not God will not forget about you you will know exactly that Christ is returning. So instead of being worried and wringing your hands and worrying about if you're going to miss it, you can have hope. Now, I began this morning by looking at each of the disciples' lives. And though there are persecutions of Christians going on all the time, truly, you think about that first century, it must have been terrifying. Think about this what if every single leader in Christianity was martyred in the next few years. That's what happened in that early church. Every main leader, the apostles of Jesus, all were killed. Can you imagine that happening? If all, take, a, take all your spiritual heroes, the preachers you love the most, except for me, kill them all. <laughs> they all die. Can you imagine that happening? I mean, that was a terrible century. And yet, in that same century, the gospel went through all the world, just as Jesus said. That's what happened at that first generation after Jesus. Terrifying generation that Jesus filled his men with hope. He prepared their hearts. And my prayer is that you be prepared and hopeful as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. We do thank you for the hope and the preparation that you've given us. Lord, no matter what comes our way, no matter what hardship happens in our lives, Lord, we can maintain our hope, we can maintain our joy, even through tears, we can have a love for you, because you are God who is in complete and utter total sovereign control of every little detail in this world. Lord, you may not, in our lives, have constant victory over sickness or death. In fact, unless you tarry. We, In the end, we all will die at some point, there'll be a hard moment of our lives, perhaps our minds are going, perhaps it happens in a rush, perhaps it happens over many years of sickness. But Lord, we don't have to fear that, we don't have to fear the hardships that are coming our way, this is part and parcel of Your great massive plan, and ultimately we can look to the return of Jesus Christ, and when He comes, He will do away with all those evil things and Satan will finally be cast into the lake of fire forever. And none of this wickedness, none of this harm will ever happen again. Lord, we hope in You. We love You. We thank You that You would save us and allow us at least some taste of evil and hardship so that we would know of Your magnificent, amazing grace. And Lord, it is based upon that saving action, that you saved us out of this dark world. It is based on that action that we will sing to you and worship you for eternity. Help us do this even now. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, stand with me for a benediction. This is inspired by 1 Thessalonians 4.13. of you've studied Thessalonians, you know one of the things that the Thessalonians struggled with is some of them were teaching that Jesus had already come and a bunch of missed it. And Paul wrote in part to assure them and make them not ignorant of the things of God that they had not indeed missed it. Now may we go with the joy of Christ, not ignorant anymore of the things that are to come, but full of hope in the glory of Jesus Christ and His return. Amen.